Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Carissa Nitschi. And today we are focused on tech policy. We at Brussels Sprouts thought we could host, uh, hold an episode. Um, what I'm thinking of as tech policy uh, for dummies, tech policy in the transatlantic relationship for dummies. Um, and so to break down these issues and kind of as a public service to the transatlantic community, we reached out to two of our favorite technology experts um, and friends of the transatlantic security program, Fran Burwell uh, and Tyson Barker. So welcome to you both. Good to be here. Thank you. Um, very quick back background. Um, so Fran is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council and a senior advisor at McLarty Associates. Uh, until January 2017, she was vice president, European Union and special initiatives at the council, as well as director of the council's program on transatlantic relations. And Tyson Barker leads the technology and global affairs program at the German Council of Foreign Relations. He was previously at the at Aspen, Germany, where he was the deputy executive director and fellow uh, responsible for the Institute's digital and transatlantic programs. And he's also served in numerous positions um, in the US government, including as a senior advisor in the Bureau for European and Eurasian Affairs at the Department of State. So welcome to you both, that was a mouthful, but um, in the spirit of um, public, a public service announcement for the transatlantic community, I wanna just start um, really kind of with at that 10,000 foot level and just hear how you would explain where we are uh, in the technology domain, in the transatlantic relationship, um, whether or not you think things are possibly moving in a productive direction with the um, incoming Biden administration, or if really some of these persistently thorny issues um, if we're still kind of stuck in the sand. So I don't know, you can feel free to take that in any direction that you'd like, but really just to kind of get the 10,000 foot level to situate um, the rest of the conversation. And Fran, maybe we can start with you. Sure. Well, the first point I would make is that the US and the EU, we talk a lot about their global economic partnership across the whole sectors of the economy, but it is really in the digital area where things are growing, um, where we have more and more interactions digitally across the Atlantic, where US companies find the European market to be a very lucrative market. Um, and so if you look at the growth areas of the transatlantic economy, where people are investing, a lot of it is because of the digital economy. So that's number one, they are, it's important uh, that we, deal with this economy. More and more companies, just normal everyday companies are becoming digital companies. It's harder and harder to distinguish. Um, many of the leading German car companies, for example, their cars are not like cars that are just mechanical devices. They have artificial intelligence in them and all sorts of stuff going on. So normal, normal companies are becoming digital companies and it's sometimes hard to tell the difference. Um, but we have gone through this transition to the digital economy with two different philosophies. The American philosophy to date has been that the rules of the traditional economy fit the global, the digital economy. And we don't necessarily need to legislate or regulate anything extra, right? Europe, however, 
which has much more fondness for regulations in general than does the United States, has decided that the digital economy requires special regulations. It's, it's a more intrusive kind of economy, if you want, and it's much harder to control the, the companies in the normal way that you would if they had bricks and mortar in your country, rather than just accessing your citizens digitally. And so I think we find ourselves with some serious differences in perspective in terms of the approach to the digital economy, um, but not necessarily irreconcilable. And I would also say that the US is changing. And whereas you know, the Obama administration, if I can characterize it, I would say it was kind of in love with big tech. Big tech was an opportunity. It was a sign of American leadership, et cetera. Then you have the Trump administration, which basically didn't pay any attention to uh, big tech at all. There were a couple of exceptions, but not, not huge. Um, and now we have the Biden administration and not only the administration itself, but Congress following the elections and also the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. There's a lot more concern about social media companies. There's a lot more concern about um, antitrust and, and competition among the larger tech companies. But this brings up an issue in the transatlantic and I'll just finish with this. And that's that it's very hard for the US and the EU to figure out how to move forward together in technology and digital policy if the United States doesn't know what it wants. And this administration has been in office, what, less than 100 days? And they still don't have a lot of their people. Um, they have brought in some people who have tech experience, um, but there's been no big push to kind of think about what do we actually want? What's the comprehensive framework? There are bills every day up on Capitol Hill being introduced. We don't know which of those will survive or you know, become something that we actually talk about. So it's very uncertain here how the US is going to go in the next four years on tech policy and, and therefore how it will interact with the EU. That's great. And maybe we can circle back to onto some of these questions of personnel yeah. as everyone's trying to read the tea leaves with some of these early announcements and what it means for the direction of tech policy. It might be interesting to, to come back to that. But Tyson, anything you want to build on or elaborate there? I, I think that was the, a great uh, summary of the kind of big strokes. I would just add that, you know, Europe was very unnerved uh, by the Trump administration's um, somewhat um, um, uh, erratic uh, policy in restricting uh, access to technology, IP, um, and extraterritorial legislation around data access, for example, for law enforcement in the form of the Cloud Act. And uh, just generally the tone of the US-China trade war or tech war um, over the past two years in the, of the Trump administration. And as the COVID crisis hit, uh, something happened in Europe that, that caused a great deal of ambivalence in the transatlantic tech relationship, which was an accelerated adoption of US tech in Europe. So the reliance, the over-reliance in, in the opinion of some in Brussels, Berlin, and Paris 
on US cloud services, on uh, messaging services, on social media, and on um, any kind of communication services, as well as on semiconductors, which have a big piece of the value add uh, connected to the United States, started to get people thinking about how to operationalize a policy to emancipate Europe from US tech. Uh, and that took the form, uh, you hear this buzzword a lot, uh, but it was, it was actually Merkel, uh, Chancellor Merkel said it was the leitmotif of the German EU presidency of looking at digital sovereignty and what that could mean. Uh, but as Fran outlined, uh, the election of Joe Biden as president and the changing sentiment, political sentiment in the United States on, I would say, four areas uh, has really opened a space for greater cooperation. And the four areas that I would name are, first of all, data protection and privacy, where you see a lot of convergence, particularly at the state level with new laws in California and Virginia. Um, on antitrust, there's a lot more uh, investigative energy uh, in the FTC, at states, in the Attorney General's office, et cetera. Um, on uh, intermediary liability and content moderation, uh, another area that Europe is looking to address with the Digital Services Act and the United States will be addressing actually uh, tomorrow uh, with several hearings involving uh, big tech CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and then finally on digital services tax where you see a degree of convergence as well. So those four regulatory areas, there's convergence. That's the good news. Um, the difficult part is the asymptotic nature of that convergence, that even though they're getting closer, they're never gonna be the same. And so how do you optimize that convergence without expecting the same kind of policies on both sides of the Atlantic? And I think that that's gonna be the challenge. Okay, you both just put a tremendous amount on the table and I'm really tempted to take Tyson's bait on dig the digital sovereignty question and how that re relates to strategic autonomy and other kind of pushes for sovereignty. But I'm gonna set that aside for a minute because I like the, the roadmap that you just laid out for us, Tyson, which is getting at some of these thorny issues. And so maybe we can spend a minute and just break some of those down, um, starting with, I think you mentioned first, the data protection and privacy. Um, so I would ask of both of you, kind of if you can explain where the tensions are between the United States uh, and Europe on data protection and privacy. Um, you know, what, what, is, what is all of this about? And then we can talk about maybe where it might be, where we might be headed given some of the convergence that Tyson talked about. But Fran, what, like, what, how, do you, how do you describe the tensions? Well, I think to some degree, the tensions on data privacy and the protection of personal data um, come from history, particularly in Germany and other states in Europe that have experienced totalitarian authoritarian governments, where the government took your data and it wasn't good news for you as a citizen. Um, so there is a strong feeling about that. And then coupled with the Snowden revelations, which demonstrated that in the wake of 9-11, that data of any person that ended up in the United States could be subject to mass surveillance by the NSA. This alarmed a lot of people in Europe. And uh, I think what we still find um, in the cloud debate that goes on in Europe right now is this idea that because the US government might have access through the Cloud Act to data that is held by Microsoft or any, any large American company, 
even on their servers outside the United States, i.e. in Europe, has, would have to provide it to the US for law enforcement purposes if asked. That creates a lot of tension. So the EU has come up with what is most likely the most, I would say, thorough um, privacy protection legislation, the General Data Protection Reg Regulation, GDPR, uh, which became effective in May 2018, I think. And uh, the California law and many of the state laws that we're starting to see bubble up are semi-based on this. Um, and it limits what anyone can use your data for and how long they can, they can hold it. What has the United States and Europe set up a system so um, data could be transferred from, the United, from Europe to the United States, personal data. So um, Volkswagen has um, plants, factories in both the United States and Europe. And if their HR division wants to compare data, they have to send it back and forth, right? So their companies are doing this every single day. But through a series of, case, of court cases in Europe, and most recently, this past summer, the European Court of Justice, which is like the Supreme Court, um, decided that these transfers were not, could not continue under what was known as the Privacy Shield Framework because the protections from surveillance by our national security institutions was not adequate. And it raised all sorts of questions about other mechanisms that companies use to transfer that data. This issue is currently being negotiated between the United States and the EU, but there's a lot of concern that those negotiations won't be quickly concluded or that there won't be enough that the US can promise to safeguard the data because we don't have a national privacy law. And we do know that any arrangement that we come to, there are people in Europe who will take it to court again. And so this is an ongoing issue. Um, and it's one that has huge ramifications for companies and other institutions. Um, that work in both, both European companies and American companies who are transferring data. So this is a very real conflict and it's one that the parties want to solve, but they're finding it very difficult. And I think that because of the different perspectives on privacy and the different places that our legislation are on privacy. Jason, maybe you can kind of pick up on that piece. And so I think, um, like, so for example, the US Chamber of Commerce, I think put out a statement kind of pressuring the Biden administration to, to pick this up. Right. And it does seem just as Fran said that there is kind of political interest will to try to come up with a, a privacy shield 2.0. Can you, in, in the, like, what do you see in the negotiation as the big sticking points um, I know one is like kind of maybe the US would have to pass legislation that gets at some of our surveillance practices, but there's other there's other sticking points or other things that maybe could help mitigate um, some of the European concerns. So maybe could you kind of tell us what you think are some of the st sticking points in the negotiation and how optimistic you are that they might come up um, with a, a solution, a, a privacy shield 2.0 in the near term. Sure. Um, so first of all, uh, 
the Biden administration sent a really powerful signal um, on day one in office on uh, January 20th when they appointed uh, Christopher Hoff to be the lead privacy shield negotiator already on day one. So clearly this is an issue that they realize is, is very meaningful uh, for the transatlantic technology uh, data relationship. Um, you know, I, the way I describe it is there's a kind of impossible triangle uh, that the partners on both sides of the Atlantic are looking at. There are three elements of the triangle, but the US and Europe can only have two of the three in their current forms. Uh, the three elements are open data flows, open flows of personal data on the one hand, uh, bulk surveillance uh, on the second, and uh, the pre preservation and protection of fundamental rights as it is interpreted by the ECJ. You can have any of the two, but you can't have all three at once right now. And as negotiations have started, uh, the European Union and uh, Commissioner Jarova have laid out what they need, what they would like to see addressed. And they said it in very, very plain terms, three things. The first is access to US courts for judicial redress for European citizens, so that if their data is collected, they can figure out why. Um, the second is enforceable uh, individual rights, um, so that they need to have the same rights as US citizens. Um, and the third is uh, limitations against disproportionate interference uh, with, with privacy. So this is the most difficult piece, which is the necessary and proportional standard that the European Union would like to set. So dealing with the redress issue, I think that that might be one of the easier issues. Mm -hmm. um, there's ways that the administration is already looking at creating avenues for European citizens to check uh, effectively to see how their data is being used, um, even the extension of rights. Uh, but getting at this question of nece necessity and proportional collection of data would probably require changes in laws that will make it most difficult. And that's gonna be the most difficult sticking point, I think. The, the one thing I've heard little pieces of though, is that then the Europeans are um, having like double standards. So like the French, yeah. for example, um, may have ways to work around some of this. And so that the United States is being held to standards that the Europeans, some European countries maybe themselves don't um, uphold. Is, can you explain that a little bit, Fran? Yeah, I mean, basically, you, European legislation, European level legislation often gives a pass to domestic actors, national domestic actors in the EU um, in terms of what, particularly if there's a national security relationship. So um, there are national security entities in all of the European, major European states who are looking for terrorists in Europe and who are doing some surveillance. And they basically get a pass on this legally. Um, and it's understandable. And, but I think we need to have a conversation across the Atlantic about, okay, if your intelligence service is doing this and our intelligence service is doing this, how can we, neither of us wants to not protect our citizens against terrorists and other evil characters and that's why we need to do this. So is there a, a meeting point where there's a reasonable way of, of looking at this? The other double standard is that the EU uses what are known as adequacy agreements. In other words, the EU decides 
that your privacy protections in wherever are adequate to protect European citizens' data. And they've done this with a few other countries. Privacy Shield was our adequacy agreement. And the question is, now that this decision has come down about the United States and, and has laid out some kind of conditions in terms of protection from national security surveillance, will it be applied? Will other adequacy rules, regimes that they have, arrangements that they have, be reviewed to see if those countries are adequately protecting data from national security surveillance. In some cases, I suspect they are. In other cases, they're not that many adequacy agreements. In other cases, they may not be. So I think that's something that the commission is now undertaking is to do a review about this and to upgrade the adequacy agreements so that they will be in keeping with the judgment against the United States adequacy agreement. Okay, one more follow-up on data privacy and protection, which is the cloud infrastructure. How does that debate or kind of Europe's um, stated intent to, to build its own European cloud infrastructure fit into all of this, Tyson? Oh, it's it's massive. I mean, so right now you have this, this debate primarily in, in Berlin and, and Paris about the need to build a, what they call a federated cloud infrastructure, a European cloud infrastructure or a sovereign cloud. Um, and the, the big um, vehicle for this, this project has been called Gaia X, where they're trying to create a protocol that will allow smaller or just any cloud company to have interoperability with other cloud services, but all based on European law. So based on uh, GDPR, um, it is, explicitly meant to protect against access, data access based on the Cloud Act, as they have many times said. Um, and this project is just now getting off the ground. There is a committee that is headed by Deutsche Telekom and uh, OVH in France that is looking to set the rules for what this cloud infrastructure would look like. But this gets to the heart of one of those big strategic questions. and an interesting strategic ambiguity that exists in Europe, which is what does Europe really mean by digital sovereignty? Do they mean as some people in Berlin and uh, the architects of Gaia X in Germany think that they wanna create a space for greater competition so that US hyperscalers don't dominate. And I have to say that Europe has 90% of market share in Europe is held by US companies, US cloud service providers. First and foremost, AWS, Amazon, but followed very closely by Microsoft and Google. So they wanna create a more pluralistic space, break up this kind of oligopolistic uh, stranglehold on the market. Second, they want to create a rules, very highly regulated rules-based a cloud space where GDPR uh, is protected, where extraterritorial rules don't apply, et cetera. Uh, third, they want to make sure that the individual has control over their data. So sovereignty is placed in the individual. And this has a lot to do with something called data portability so that you don't get locked into services. There's not a path dependent relationship that you can't take your data out of an Amazon cloud, for example. You could move it from Amazon to a smaller cloud service provider. Um, and the fourth, they want openness. You know, they want more choice, more freedom, more, more movement. So that's what some in Germany think. Some in Germany and definitely in France think 
this will be the vehicle to create a space for a European cloud champion. And the, the French have actually tried to do this in the past. They had a project in 2011 and 2012 under Sarkozy called Andromeda. Um, they said, you know, US big tech already um, has too much control over our sovereign data space. And we need to create a French uh, cloud, a kind of technogolism. It didn't work. Um, and we don't hear very much about Andromeda right now, but this is an attempt to Euroize and reboot that process post Snowden, post Trump, post um, uh, Cambridge Analytica, post cloud, uh, cloud Act. So that friction between these two interpretations of digital sovereignty, a kind of technogolism on the one hand and an ordo liberalism on the other hand are really playing out in this cloud space. One, so in so is it just big tech or is it US tech? So for example, if there were smaller cloud providers, would they be welcome to you know do their thing in Europe or is it so it, so is it is it the big tech that they don't like or is this really more about using and building up Europe's own capability capacity using European firms? I would say it's both. I don't think you can divorce them or, or actually give them a preference. I mean, because one, there, it's a mutually dependent relationship. I mean, it, it helps, I think, there's something that Margaret Vestager, uh, who is the top digital policymaker in the European Commission often says, and she says, imagine you Americans that 90% of your um, cloud service that you, engaged with were German. Imagine that 70% of your online shopping was done with an Indian company. Imagine that 85% of your hardware came from a Brazilian company or a Canadian company. How would you feel about that? And I think most of us would kind of sit back and go, oh, you know, that's, that's not good. Um, even though it may be the result of an open competitive economy. Um, and so I think that the Europeans and cloud is, it's, it's a tough one because um, everyone wants their data to be secure, to be available very quickly, et cetera. And the technology itself is changing. There's a lot more talk now, not about huge cloud, but about edge cloud and you know, much more disaggregated um, and closer locally. So there's a, the technology is changing in a way that um, I don't think it's going to get rid of this issue, but it highlights this distinction between the United States and Europe. And on Gaia X, there are a number of American companies involved, but to date they have not been admitted to the decision-making committee where they talk about what what is Gaia X actually going to evolve into and things like that. It's, uh, as Tyson said, although European companies are very much engaged in that. Can I, can I add one point to what Fran said? She said everything, it was perfect. But the, the, the big point is, is the field of dreams question. If you yeah. build it, will they come? <laughs> because yeah. as Fran mentioned, Europe is, a, is, a super, is a, an incredibly open market right now. And this is, has strengths and it has vulnerabilities, which I think we'll discuss. 
but one of the reasons why US cloud service providers dominate, aside from lock-in, is, is a suite of services they offer across different lines of service that Europeans actually like to use. Yeah. So the big question is, if GaiaX comes online, will it be able to draw a customer base? Um, and that's that's something we should know very uh, in the next year or so. While we're talking on these thorny technology issues, let's zoom in on one more. Um, so one thing that Tyson outlined and that also comes up very frequently in the transatlantic space are digital services taxes. So let's start at the very beginning. Um, if someone wants to explain, I mean, what is a digital service tax if we're starting there? And then what's the big debate between the United States and Europe over these? And how does it fit into this greater conversation about the role of large US technology companies? So let me start um, by recounting that um, when online shopping began, a lot of cities and towns across the United States and states discovered that they weren't getting revenues from the shopping malls anymore, right? And this has happened across Europe, you know, come, uh, as they've seen online shopping grow and online services grow, local vendors who pay taxes are not getting as much revenue. And in some cases, this is very serious, right? So um, they have been looking for ways to recapture that. In addition, we all know that the large companies, they don't make their money necessarily by sales. After all, um, Facebook is free to all of us, right? They make it by advertising and they're making lots of money. And the last time I checked, there were more Facebook users in Europe than there were in the United States. So, um, is Facebook's making all that money off Europeans? Should they pay taxes to Europe? And this becomes even more complicated because many of these country, companies do have a European home. Many of them pick Ireland or Luxembourg because they offer lower corporate rates. Um, and so they will pay what they're owed in Ireland for all of Europe, right? Depending on how they've split their market in their corporate internal structure. Um, in some cases though, they say that the intellectual property that is behind all this is in the United States. And so we pay taxes on that based on to the United States, right? So you end up with a couple of disagreements about where tax should be paid. Um, and who gets the money for all the, all the money that they're making by monetizing data. Sometimes it's very clear where the money should go. If you're um, a food service delivery company or uh, like an Uber or a Lyft, there's something concrete that happens on the ground in a country, clearly that good is being sold in Brussels or Paris or Berlin. You know, but a lot of this stuff, it's not location specific at all. So the OECD has started a process a couple of years ago to look at how you could replace revenue that has been lost by this digitalization, how to um, fairly divide this up and, and reconcile these, um, these issues. 
It's been a long, ongoing process. The Trump administration was not a friend of this process. Uh, and in the meantime, the EU tried to pass its own digital services tax, i.e. you figure out which countries are making how much money off your citizens but not paying taxes and you find a way to tax them. Um, the EU failed to pass that tax, but several European countries have been able to do so. And we actually, we the United States, put tariffs on some of these, or threatened to put tariffs on France when they started collecting the taxes. So there's a pending US-EU dispute about this. In the meantime, the Biden administration has come in and re-engaged with the OECD process. We all hope that the OECD will find a solution to a very, very thorny issue. Whether it's going to be tough because it means, you know, will the US get less of the pie, the digital pie, the US government get less of the revenue of the or what? How does that how does that work? So I think we're at the beginning of this and it's going to be quite a challenge. Jason, I don't know if you have anything you want to add, but I, I want to, or we can go in a different direction, which would be to talk about kind of where are these discussions being held? Um, so there's obviously like the bilateral or discussions between the United States and the EU. Um, Fran just mentioned the OECD. Here, the G7 is also has a big focus. Is it all of the above? And, and how, how, you know, how would you describe kind of the where the center of gravity is for some of these important discussions? Oh my gosh, it's it's so complicated. Uh, you really need an organogram or some kind of I don't know what uh, to really map this stuff out. And and that's going to always be the case because a lot of these questions are very qualitatively different. Um, the European Union has been on a charm offensive, as you know, uh, with the Biden administration, has released a strategy for transatlantic and global cooperation, has released a couple of communications on inclusive multilateralism and the digital compass, which we'll talk about. And at the center of a lot of these is this idea of a, a US-EU trade and technology council, which I think that they would like to drive some of these conversations into. Uh, but they're happening bilaterally, they're happening globally, they're happening in all sorts of informal constellations in multilateral organizations like the ITU, like the International Standards Organization. Um, I mean, and, and again, they're not gonna, there's not gonna be one, a one-stop shop when you're talking about tech policy, it's just not gonna happen. Um, but they are trying to, they're just really, the European Union is really trying to think about how they can institutionalize this relationship with, with the Biden administration, knowing its natural inclination towards multilateralism and transatlanticism. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why they have proposed uh, this, this council. Um, and what exactly would go into this council, whether it be the regulatory piece, which is you know a lot of the alphabet soup that we've been talking about thus far, whether it be the industrial policy piece, because mm -hmm both sides of the Atlantic are going much more, leaning much more into industrial policy uh, on uh, key disruptive technologies, or whether it be the market access piece. Uh, you know, how should both sides of the Atlantic deal with investment screening? How should they deal with the export of dual use technologies? And increasingly, the United States has been doing this in the Trump administration, but 
the European Union hasn't, quite frankly, is how do you deal with the import of sensitive technologies that are part of systems that can be used for surveillance, for example, or cyber, you, they could be cyber threats, or they could be, uh, you know, put you in an asymmetric, um, you know, dependent relationship with a country like China, be it in your connectivity infrastructure on 5G or things like, um, you know, AI powered biometric screening technology uh, like Hike Vision, which is on the entity list in the United States, but is being used to screen for COVID-19 in European institutions, uh, including the Council and European Parliament. So getting that kind of conversation going in an institutionalized but uh, multidisciplinary way, I think that that is something that will be on the agenda the next couple of months. Let me, can I just add something to that? I think um, there is a very large positive agenda that the US and the EU can pursue in this area. And that's primarily in the tech field. Can, I think the last administration's campaign against Huawei in 5G in Europe was an eye-opener for the Europeans. And they have um, now set up their own, I forget if it's a toolbox or a toolkit, um, for 5G security. But there is a lot more that we could do together in terms of developing cybersecurity standards, especially for Internet of Things. Uh, if not five, along with 5G, there's 6G. There's all sorts of this type of um, technology uh, arrangement. They also, in this, in this proposal for a US-EU agenda for global change, the Europeans suggested that we negotiate an AI accord, an artificial intelligence accord with standards. So I think that something like a tech and trade council can help to focus these uh, discussions. I'm a little hesitant about the tech and trade council because I think we also need something bigger and more, you know, driven by the White House and there and the head of the commission and von der Leyen's office because it's Traditionally, it has been hard for US-EU dialogues to bring together all the different agencies that we need to do. And this is one thing that I, I would just say is that the EU is very well set up in the commission to deal with digital issues. They have an executive vice president for Europe in the digital age, right? And other people who, who report to her who are focused on this issue. We don't have anything, any structure like that in the US government. We have people who handle this issue kind of like as a sidebar. So um, I think that it might actually help us, the Americans, focus on what we need to do bureaucratically to be more successful in this area. So there's the bureaucratic kind of problems or limits on coordination. Um, I also wonder to what extent you think some of the kind of just major currents in the EU, now the UK, and then, you know, we have the US piece in the sense that there's, there seems to be a big push for autonomy and sovereignty in each of these areas. And so the EU, Tyson, like you're talking about is, or you're saying is pushing for digital autonomy. That seemed to be a big piece in the UK's integrated review, kind of a push to be a leader in the digital space and creating these digital backbones. And the word sovereignty also showed up on, you know, in, in many multiple times in that document too. So I wonder 
you know, just very broadly and, and kind of unknowable at this point, but how concerned are you that we're, that these things are kind of being siloed, um, which could either create a risk of um, kind of fragmentation in, in this space and kind of a growing apart in some, in some of these important areas and or that then we're not gonna be as competitive as we could be um, relative to a China. Like if our innovation and some of these things aren't happening in lockstep or in a more coordinated way and we all wanna do our own thing, we're gonna each, we each wanna be able to do it all then that's, you know, has the potential to create problems. You know, the UK, the integrated review and the entire experience with Brexit is, is somewhat telling because the success there was predicated on a political logic of taking back control. And that logic is also, or was a driving force in Europe's debate around strategic autonomy and digital sovereignty. It's mm -hmm. the logic of we should take back control. Um, some forces in Europe, including Angela Merkel, have tried to nuance that a little bit by saying, you know, there we want to preserve openness in our economy. We want to create interdependence, but we don't want asymmetric dependencies. Uh, and as a final result, we need to create the mechanisms to take back control. And I think that was a clear message at France, but also at her economic ministry. Um, but in a lot of these areas, and this gets into the digital compass debate, you know, there are some very specific targets on key, techno key enabling technologies like semiconductors, uh, emerging technologies like quantum computing, uh, 5G equipment, et cetera, where we really have to ask, are these fit for purpose? Are these realistic goals? And how much are we you know, you're just reinventing the wheel to some extent? And how much will it be ultimately be counterproductive? Um, and I think these are questions that we should ask. Um, maybe just to jump in on the on the semi piece, on the semiconductor piece. To start, uh, you know, the the digital compass, which is this document, it was a kind of opening roadmap, which has a lot of good things in it. Concrete targets by 2030, uh, starting to operationalize this big stimulus package that the European Union passed in July last year, um, setting benchmarks and monitoring so that they can actually say, you know, this is not working. <laughs> we, need to, we need to revisit this, which is not something that has necessarily happened in the past. Um, but it says on the, on the semiconductor piece, it says, you know, we need semiconductors. Uh, we want to be able to produce these high-end semiconductors, so smaller than five nanometers, uh, which are currently only produced in one fabrication uh, facility in the world, which is in Taiwan, TSMC. They say, we need to be able to produce these here. We currently produce 10% of production and value uh, of those very, very high-end semiconductors. We need to be able to do 20. We want to double it. But the truth is, is that, I mean, you might be able to say Europe has ASML, which creates this specific equipment, which allows for those uh, semiconductors to be produced. Incidentally, ASML, a Dutch company, the only one in the world. So they really do have a chokehold um, on, on that, that piece of the supply chain, um, which is also supported by German companies like Zeiss, uh, and, um, and Trump, uh, so laser technology, for example. Now they say, oh, well, we need to get it to 20% by 2030. But the truth is, is that right now, Europe is producing 0% of the production of those high-end semiconductors. 
What they do produce is uh, some niche semiconductors at facilities like Infineon in, uh, in Dresden. Apple just announced that it's going to do more chip design in Munich, investing a billion uh, euros. They're opening up a new fab, uh, Infineon, in Austria, putting two billion into that. But it's going to require a huge amount of investment and creation of an ecosystem with know-how. Um, some estimates around uh, 20 billion to be able to create that kind of facility and start to get to the level of catch up that Taiwan has. Um, and you know, the Chinese are doing this as well, obviously with, uh, with this MIC, um, pulling in uh, Taiwanese talent and know-how, just pouring brute industrial money into this project and have thus far not been successful. So the question is, is this really the area that Europe wants to create independent capacity or does it want to create interdependent capacity with like-minded states like the United States. And there, I think that the conversation is actually also well teed up for this Trade and Technology Council. How can the two create complementarity in the relationship so nobody feels that like the other one is dominating the other? Um, there are some good ideas, even on semiconductors in the United States right now. Obviously, uh, the U.S. is going to is passed, I believe, the Chip Act. They're going to put a lot of money into semiconductor capacity. Um, maybe now is the time to talk about how Europe can be part of that supply chain to make sure that they're always included, so that they're part of the the essential supply chain, uh, so that they feel like they won't be cut off in you know in a whim if if another administration comes into office. I would just add that um, I think, especially since COVID demonstrated the problems of supply chains when we were trying to find the PPE. Um, and now we're seeing that with the vaccinations themselves and the components of the vaccine. I think on both sides of the Atlantic, there's much more attention to where does stuff come from and what could possibly happen that would limit the delivery to me of components that I really need. So I think that this is something, you see this as well, although there are also social welfare aspects in the Biden administration's Buy America executive order and, so, and supply chain executive order. So I think that you know, it's not just Europe that's going through this. Sometimes this harkens back to me, the discussions in Europe harken back to the early discussions about Airbus. You know, and, and it was thought that it was kind of crazy that people would get together and create this odd consortium to develop a plane. Some of the planes have been total flops, but others are, of course, uh, major components in uh, the fleets that go around the world, that fly around the world every day. Um, so I wouldn't dismiss European efforts to build new technologies. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. I do think that one thing they haven't adequately addressed is capital markets, because one thing that we see in Europe a lot, there are tons of startups in Europe. There's, there's no failure of the startup community in Europe, but it's getting from startup to scaling up and there's not enough flexible money. Um, so many of them end up getting bought by an American company or they come to Silicon Valley and look for money with the VCs there. And, you know, because there's not enough flexible money in Europe. So I think there's still quite a ways to go 
um, to know whether Europe's efforts in this area will, um, will pay off for them or not. There's still a lot of other obstacles, but I think that this discussion about building things on site, you know, within your territory is something that we are going through too. And the question for all of us is, you know, can you actually decouple from each other or from particular bad actors? And to what degree can you do it? I don't think you can do it 100%, but will we be, we can't go back to, you know, totally open and free trading system, which probably never actually existed except in economist models. Um, with, with the current national security environment and concerns about the technology that we have today. One last question on the digital compass front. So as I was reading this document, one thing I was really struck by is that there are only three mentions of China in the entire document. And these are all three as a baseline to kind of measure where Europe is on some of these technologies with respect to China and then also the United States. I mean, how much do you think China loomed large in this strategy, if at all. And then as we look forward to kind of transatlantic cooperation on addressing some of the sticky China tech issues, you know, do you think that there's appetite for that across the Atlantic right now? Oh, it's complicated because, <laughs> you know, the U.S. and China have a, a very complex relationship where there's partnerships on climate change or potential for partnerships. There's uh, competition and there's rivalry. And that's true for the European Union in spades. I mean, they have a lot more uh, foreign direct investment in China. Um, as we've seen over the COVID crisis, uh, the decline in GDP in Europe and demand in Europe has only been held up by the increasing demand for manufactured products like autos, uh, heavy machinery, and appliances in China, all of which are becoming tech companies, as Fran mentioned, all becoming systems-based companies as, as, as opposed to engineering-based companies, which means that they need to have access to, for example, data centers. One of the drivers, incidentally, of the um, comprehensive agreement on investment, which uh, the uh, German government pushed for conclusion in, in December. We'll see if that passes the European Parliament. Um, but managing that very sensitive relationship and is particularly the equities that are involved with member states means that the commission has to manage this extremely gingerly, extremely delicately. And I think that's one of the reasons why sometimes you see the commission in these type of documents drain a lot of the geopolitical dimensions of these questions. The problem when you do that is it doesn't have the same kind of galvanizing force of a uh, national security commission on AI, which says, you know, China's eating our lunch. We have to be AI ready by 2025, uh, sets a mission and really uh, creates an organizing logic around that mission. Um, so that is, it is missing to some extent from uh, the digital compass and from the strategy because it still works in this kind of collaborative multilateralist world where you have to massage out the, the differences between member states. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough one. I would just make a couple of points because I think Tyson is right. It is complicated and, and it's not surprising that China doesn't feature in the digital compass. Um, I do find that over the last, I'd say, two years, attitudes in Europe towards China are, have 
started to change significantly. There's much more wariness, uh, much more frustration about offers that China made in Central Europe that didn't pan out. Um, there's more concern, particularly, the, the concern about human rights in China leads to a concern about facial recognition technology, for example. So I think you find that um, there is a lot more concern about China's access to tech and tech provided by China. But because there are also these very strong economic ties with China, the European way of handling this would be to set up criteria. That means that most Chinese companies are going to be viewed as suspect vendors and they do this in the, in the tool box for 5G security, but never mention China. So if you look down at that list of, of criteria, any company that has to automatically surrender data to the national government makes it suspect. Well, you know, that includes most Chinese companies. So I think I hear from Europeans that they're very concerned about entering into a new Cold War with China and getting caught up in the middle of this US-Chinese unpredictable to them um, conflict about technology as well as a whole bunch of other things. And so they would like to define the issue in a way that advances their own security. And they see China on trade and tech issues as a major challenge to the, to the system that Europe has benefited from, the global system that Europe has benefited from. They spent the last four years urging us to join with them to address Chinese abuses at the WTO, and we didn't respond, right? So they would rather do it, they're well aware of the problem, but they would rather deal with it in a kind of neutral way. The digital compass itself is one of many documents that the commission has produced that use benchmarking. And they've done this all the way back to accession of Central Europe. And the commission does it very well. There's another uh, thing that this is based on that the digital compass is drawn from called DESI, the Digital Economy and Society Index, which has, is an excellent way of comparing the member states and seeing who has, you know, more engineering degrees and more students learning how to code and things like that. Um, so this is very much a methodology and exactly as Tyson said, it is intended, you can't get every, all the member states to agree to everything if you use very political language, but if you use this technical language, you can just go through and you can make real progress. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the digital compass become something that once a year, you have to check off the boxes you can. And if they can't get that 20% of global share of superconductor, uh, semiconductor um, processing, uh, that manufacturing, then there will be questions asked. And they will have to return to that question again and again and try and figure out how they're going to do it. This has been really a fantastic episode. I think we fulfilled our mission of providing a public service to the transatlantic community. I know I learned a lot and I feel a lot um, smarter on transatlantic tech policy. So I just wanna thank both of you for taking the time to do this, Fran and Tyson. And I think we could have kept talking or we could have gone in a hundred different directions. And so maybe we'll figure out 
um, another episode that we can dig into and, and dissect and, and explain to Brussels sprouts listeners. So thanks so much for doing it.